Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the scholar and writer Mackenzie Wark about her latest book called Raving. Wait, so... (laughs) For those playing at home, is this about raves, like about going to raves? Yeah, as the Ooh. title suggests, yes, it's about <laughs> it's about the practice of raving and the kind of theory of raving. I felt like raves were like antithetical to theory. Like well, isn't the whole thing about getting yes, lost in the dance? That is part of this book that's expressed by Mackenzie that the practice of raving is almost the antithesis of theory, but I think if you're a theoretical person it's hard to turn it off so that's what she was saying sometimes on the dance floor all these ideas are just flowing out and she's just trying to like let them pass and sometimes she'll she'll write them later not like walk around with a little pen and pencil at the rave itself I never was a raver in the 90s in Los Angeles to my regret at this point but because Mackenzie is in her 60s I felt like this book gave me a lot of hope that I could possibly become one in the future if I felt like it, which, you know, drugs, dancing, making out, like, why wouldn't you want to go to raves? It sounds great. So this is the weird thing. It's actually, it's heartening to hear that you also never quite got into the rave scene. The rave scene is a thing that I think when I was of the age where I would have done it, I mean, but what you're saying, of course, is that you can rave at any age. Mm-hmm. Rave ain't nothing but a number. But... I think I was too scared of the drug, you know, the fact that there are all lots of synthetic and chemical drugs. Like, I just was like, oh, I don't think that's like the scene for me. But everything else around rave culture was like everything I would have wanted. It's a very kind of queer or fluid community. It's also, you know, I love dancing. I love music. I love doing drugs in big groups of people, you know. <laughs> so uh, natural drugs, I should say. I was a little worried about doing, like, you know, because you heard so, especially back oh, then, yeah. you heard horror stories about ecstasy and all that kind of stuff being cut with weird things. So that's why I stayed a- away from it. But I, I do regret that. I feel like I would have loved that, you know, younger. I think I'd probably still like it today. Yeah, well, just take some mushrooms and go to, like, a rainbow gathering or something, and you'll be good. <laughs> Is that the more gentle, the kind of like, you know, <laughs> no. the, the aged homosexuals guide no, to raving? I, I, I think that's a different scene, actually. It's but a I'm different sure, vibe. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, it's people's choice these days. I'm sure you can find the right scene for you. And you don't, I don't love techno. I don't think I do, but I, I probably mm. could on the right drugs or sober in the right circumstance. I spent time in Berlin and by the end of that trip, I was enjoying techno, so... <laughs> it's a, it, I think I could. I think I could get there. And this book certainly uh, was very inspiring and made me want to. So Kate Wolf is rave flexible, you guys. Yeah, totally, totally. But Mackenzie Work is a pro. So let's listen to that interview. All right, let's do it. I'm so glad to be speaking with the writer and scholar Mackenzie Work today. Mackenzie Wark is the author of many books, including A Hacker's Manifesto, The Beach Beneath the Street, The Everyday Life and Glorious Times of the Situationist International, Molecular Red, Theory for the Anthropocene, Reverse Cowgirl, and Philosophy for Spiders on the Low Theory of Kathy Acker. She teaches at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lane College in New York City. 
She's with me to discuss her latest book, Raving, which is a part of Duke University Press's Practices series. Raving beckons readers onto the dance floors of underground parties in New York, combining works on vivid experience of these spaces with her theories of the rave itself. She considers the rave's potential for a break in linear time and its offering of a different mode of self-embodiment or self-abandon. It's conditioned as a communion place for a variety of queer and trans bodies, its array of substances, and of course, its techno soundscape. In the book's six essays, work moves seamlessly from autofiction to reportage to cultural critique and invites the voices of other ravers along for the ride. Thank you so much, Mackenzie, for being here. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to ask how you came back to raving after having first experienced it in the 1980s and 90s. How is your recent experience of it different or maybe the same as when you first started? Yeah, I took a very long chill out for like 20 years and was uh, raising kids in Queens. And and then I transitioned, you know, I came out as a trans woman and, and that improved so many things in my life. But there was just some low level ambient dysphoria that just wouldn't go away. And my trans mom is a raver and she was like, well, just come dance, like come try this. And it worked. And that was several years ago. And I'm, I'm still doing it because it works, you know, and I sort of found other other things and it sort of reconnected me to sort of a lost strand in my life from the 90s. Is the scene that you're a part of remind you of the scene you were a part of in the 80s and 90s or is it just very different? I mean, I didn't mean to make myself popular by saying this, but I, I remember saying one time, I think this is better, you know, like it's like, yeah, I was there, but this is kind of better. And I can sort of see continuities, but also ways there's been sort of innovations and developments and refinements. And I'm here for that. I'm not really interested in nostalgia around music. So to sort of connect to what's happening now and the way it, way rave culture now is a sort of reflection of the, or engagement with the contemporary moment, like that sort of matters to me. You say that the first thing you look for at raves is who needs it. And among those who need it, who can handle their habit? You could explain that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people like to dance or like a night out, but it's a little bit different to kind of really need to be dancing for hours and to understand that as a shared need and how to get into the space of sharing that need. So I'm always looking for that, the rave that will have those qualities and where those people are on the floor. And you start to sort of recognize, you think New York's a big city, but you sort of recognize people after a while who have those sort of qualities. But being able to handle it's part of it too. Like a lot of people burn out. There aren't a lot of older people in these scenes. And by older, I mean over 40. So how you kind of connect to that experience and that energy without burning out from it. I think that's sort of one of the things I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in like, how can queer and trans people live long lives? You know, because often particularly trans people, we haven't. So I'm kind of interested in those arts of enduring. How much you need the space of the rave comes up a lot in your book. And you say it serves many of your needs, interests, and desires. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what it gives you and if it kind of takes the place of a different space that you had in the past for some of those same needs and desires. I mean, there's people for whom it's an entire sort of like social life and it's, it's all happening not so much at night, but in the morning, you know, 
where, you know, your friends are there, so you'll go hang out and gossip and there's, you know, dancing, obviously. There's romance. There's, like, casual sex. You know, it's a social setting for drug taking. There's release from the stress of work. And, yeah, it's like you name it. And there's all of these different being seen and being seen. I don't go to places that are more for club kids who want to take pictures of themselves and put it on Insta. Like, I think that's a totally valid thing i'm more going to the places where they put a sticker over your camera so you'll be off it and sort of interacting physically with other people some more so there's there's all of those sorts of things are are happening there yeah the book sort of is an arc from when i got separated and then was single and then i met my current girlfriend and discovered that she actually loves to do this too and we do it together and that's where it sort of ends you know so it could also be a thing that you do with with somebody else that is special to you The stress on the importance of kind of being disembodied, disassociating, losing yourself. There's this one scene where you're like making out with someone furiously in a bathroom stall. And then you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh, I look like a mess. And I think that in some ways that euphoria and then like grounding again in the body and then leaving the body again to go back to dance is an arc that I completely understand even if I don't go to raves, really, just that need to emphasize the way you feel instead of the way you perhaps look to the outside world or are being perceived seems like so important for everybody to experience. A lot of the book is overlaps with other kinds of experiences and other kinds of issues to do with that relationship between the body and subjectivity, you know. There's a lot of emphasis on those things separately, but how do you have a, and I'm also interested in an aesthetic practice, like this isn't meant to be therapeutic or anything. This is a thing that's sort of enjoyable and an art, you know, of how you can, yeah, sometimes you need to get out of your body, but sometimes you also need to get out of your own head and more into your body. And there's sort of at least four separate kinds of dissociative states that the book is about that I've found and where the reader might be able to find others of like, what are the ways we manage that body subjectivity relationship? And well, here's a space where you can do several versions of that through like dancing very intensively for a long period of time to like massively pounding techno. Yeah. I remember when I used to do a lot of yoga and it's like, I would feel as I left whatever class that my body was like amazing, you know, that I was stronger than ever, even though I looked the exact same. My friend Yaya Davis is a raver who also does techno yoga classes and not just for ravers and sometimes at the party, you know, like the party will end or begin and, you know, we'll all like be doing our damn dogs before or after like getting into dancing. So there's ways you could see those as they're very different practices in some ways, but they're kind of relatable. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those. You say you have three forks to freedom here and what those are and uh, how you kind of interpret them. Yeah, and there's sort of a surprise fourth version later in the book. But I wanted to not impose like all of these received languages on this. I wanted it to sort of, I wasn't seriously going to make it up, but I was going to like try to borrow different kinds of language for talking about some of these states and The first one is sort of a rave space where it's like I'm just one of those people with a relentless inner monologue that I can't shut up. But rave space, I kind of get into the movement so much that that's going on, but I'm not in it, if that makes any sense. So 
whatever my subjectivity is, it's not in this sort of relentless train of thought that just sort of sails by like clouds, you know. And that's just a really necessary sort of dissociated state, you know. The second one's more like a xeno-euphoria is what I call it. And that's like more coming back into your physicality, but as if it was an alien one, you know, you sort of experience the strangeness of your own physicality, but in a pleasurable way. So it's coming back to the the opposite of a dysphoria around the body, but coming into actually embracing whatever one's alien physicality is. And the third one I just called enlustment, you know, which is when like sometimes you just get really horny doing this. And there's an eroticism to dancing close to others that isn't sexual. It's just to do with this intimacy of bodies being together. And it's kind of important not to breach boundaries with that, you know. But sometimes, you know, you get the signal from somebody and it's like, all right, let's find a corner, you know. Like that can happen as well, consensually, to be very clear about that. So, yeah, sometimes it heads off into coming back into a sort of physicality that's sexual, you know, like that can happen as well. At what point in your re-entrance into raving did you kind of start to theorize this space of the rave? It seems like before you wrote this book, you were already thinking a lot about that. And how much is, you write somewhere that raving is kind of the opposite, the not quite opposite of theory. I wonder about that kind of balance for you between thinking a lot about what the meaning of all of this is or being at the rave, but also thinking about what it means and and how much that's kind of a dialectic that is either enriching the act or is maybe threatening it in some way. Somebody uh, said to me recently, oh, you know, you've just written your version of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy. And I'm like, well, that's a classic and this is just my little thing. But I was trying to figure out what in Nietzsche's terms is that relation between Apollo and Dionysus, the aesthetic of contemplation and that aesthetic of sort of loss of self, or theory and practice is another thing that was intention in it. And yeah, I kind of think I've always been interested in Dionysian states, you know, states of kind of like abandonment of the self. My earlier book, Reverse Calgals, about that, but that one's all about sex and drugs, you know, it wasn't about dancing so much. So I'm sort of interested in the relationship of concepts and thinking to those sorts of experiences and putting them in tension with each other. And from a sort of writerly point of view, I think this one does it, you know, like advances how I write that a little bit on the previous books. But is it something that you like ever try to resist as an idea is coming to you? Do you ever try to push it down or push it away just to experience what you're experiencing without giving it language? The sort of pact I had to make with myself is that if I start to think about it while I'm doing it to not stop and write it down, which is sort of a bit of a tendency a lot of writers have, but to just let it and ideally just not even to be present. Like sometimes, like whole versions of this book just wrote themselves in my head while I was dancing and I forgot most of them. And I was just like, yeah, it'll just like, percolate through my brain and I'll just forget it. And when I actually sit down to write, I feel like I'll be able to express whatever that experience was, but maybe the language will change or I'll have different thoughts about it. But yeah, like that was sort of important to me as a writer is, yeah, like just writing all the time, I can't help it. But to just let that go by and to be in whatever state it was giving to me while I was there. You say that a good raver adds an accent 
a move in time. And you also have descriptions of what I would say are like bad elements at raves or bad ravers, which you call punishers. And then there's something that I understood as being in between, which are coworkers. So maybe you could describe those terms and, you know, talk about the difference between someone who's good at the rave and who's bad. Yeah, I wouldn't say it as as good or bad. It's just people have different needs from nightlife. And the people I'm looking for to go raving with are really kind of dedicated to it as a particular kind of practice. And we sort of seek each other out and we want to a space where we can do that together. But like most of us don't drink and nightlife is all about alcohol sales and we're not buying expensive tickets to see brand name, you know, big DJs and stuff usually either, you know. So you end up in crowds that mix that with people whose needs are different, but also people whose approach to the space doesn't necessarily respect it in the same way. So like I'm also a coworker. I'm somebody with a day job, you know, and sometimes I just want to go out and get a little crazy to have a nice story to tell my coworkers on Monday. You know, like that's the coworker. It's not a bad thing to be a coworker. It's just coworkers sort of treat the space as if it's there for them to let off steam and they don't necessarily bring an energy that will contribute to it. They want to consume something from it. So you don't want to be too much around that, you know, if you're a raver. Punishers come in different flavors. and But one is someone who just really thinks them having a good time has to be at your expense. So like certain kinds of straight guys just really do this. They just like barge straight through to the front as if you're not there and knock you out of the way, stand there and do nothing. Then they get their phone out, you know, and it's just like, dude, like you're not the only one here, you know, like you're just making it hard for the rest of us by making it about you against us. So that's sort of the punisher. And there's a different kind of punisher as well, which is sort of people internal to the scene who police it, who kind of feel like, take on this entire role of deciding who's good and bad, you know. And there's a lot of issues about how you manage aggression and misbehavior and things like that. Like that's complicated, but bringing a sort of police logic into the space doesn't really help with that. Yeah. So that's sort of the other kind of punisher. There's other social types. These are types, right? Like you get very quick reads on people. There's club kids who need to see and be seen. You know, it's really adorable. I just don't particularly want to be close to that. There's circuit gays for whom it's a very particular kind of homosocial as well as homosexual experience and love it. They just act like I'm not there, you know. So that's a whole other energy that you can find in the space. Couples who, you know, like my least favorite is the rumba. It's the couple that's locked together and they literally just zoom across the, the dance floor like nobody is there, like bulldozing you out of the way as if the couple is the most sacred thing in the universe and none of the rest of us matter, you know. I could go on, but the book's full of like little observations of social types that you'll find in this world. I'm curious if you can recall a time where things got out of control and or where like some action had to be taken, but it was taken in a way that really impressed you, you know, as opposed to you saying certain punishers, police. Have you ever seen someone at a rave handle something in a way that stayed with you because it was not like a typical kind of form of redirection? Oh, many times. And, you know, there are people who have a lot of experience at that. I'm a little quick tempered, so I'm not necessarily good in those situations. But like many times you'll see people just try to diffuse a situation or handle someone who's 
who's doing badly, you know, like I had a friend have a panic attack and three of us sort of mobilized to take care of that person. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to get into specific examples too much, but yeah, like there's people very experienced with what to do when aggression happens on the dance floor in an inappropriate way or people are, are struggling, you know. it's It sort of does take a little bit of ability to read people and figure out how to handle them. The people who are real artists of this are people who do door and do door well. And this scene relies on a few people who have that skill, who can just read what's happening with the people who are coming in. The first thing about door is you always have to respect whoever is door. And a lot of people will get that wrong from the start and don't treat that person with respect, in which case you are not getting in. But of sort of filtering out and dealing with the disappointment of people who are turned away is sort of like a whole art. And I have a lot of respect for people who can do that well, because it does take a bit of filtering to create a space where it's not a safe space to make it a safer space for some of us than being on the street. This kind of balance of the rave that comes up a lot here, some different ways you describe it is that it's poised between safety and possibility, invention and intention. There's quite a few more. I'm wondering if you see it as a really fragile space. Oh, in lots of ways, yeah. I mean, you know, we could lose the little bits of Brooklyn junk space that it relies on to gentrification in six months or a year, you know, like the areas where you can rent space or take over space for this would go away. Yeah, that can happen. But even just on the night, you know, sometimes it sort of goes wrong for individuals or collectively it can not gel, it can not work for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, it's sort of like there isn't a formula for it. And that's sort of what makes it interesting is that adventure of you can't really go with expectations, you know, you just go intending to bring whatever energy you've got or quality you've got to contribute to it and hope everybody else does the same. It's not always the case. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that word urban junk space. I really love the way you describe another kind of uh, in between is that you say that the rave takes place in the gaps between magic and property where the rave mice come out to play. So I'm wondering how does the rave relate to the space of the city and also to gentrification in that it seems to be close at hand, but it's so underground that it's not reading in the same way as maybe like a more permanent establishment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the terms I use in the book, I sort of borrowed from other people and junk spaces from the architect Rem Kukulhas. And this isn't quite his definition of it, but there's sort of parts of Brooklyn, no one's quite figured out what to do with it yet. And so you'll go down a street and there'll be like condos, but it's next door to, I don't know, some property that seems to have 20 cars and various parts of disassembling next to it. And the place next to that seems to make meals for airlines, as far as anybody can tell. And the one after that is just a mystery. Like it seems to have people in it, but you have no idea what the business is and it's probably best not to ask. And then the one after that is, you know, some place that people are in their camper vans on, you know. There's parts of the city that have that property, you know, like they've had a light industrial past. That's still a little bit of what goes on. The property will probably go from being very undervalued to massively overvalued without going through in any intermediate stage is what sort of happens these days. And the book wanted to be honest that, you know, like this scene is part of the engine of gentrification itself. Kind of it draws people to want to live in proximity to it and that drives up the rents and drives out 
populations, which were often people of colour in Brooklyn. So it's part of the whole inevitable engine in a way as well of kind of transforming land use. And that's sort of the whole history of call it what you like, but if you like, you know, Bohemia's in the city kind of making a place too attractive for anybody's own good. And these days that happens pretty quickly. And I think urban development and capitalization has just become a kind of insanely efficient engine that we're barely staying one step ahead of. Yeah, of course. But then at the same time, it's like, as you're saying, it's these very in-between spaces that are taking place in the cracks, perhaps around massive developments, you know, big property value swings. It's still, you know, despite the way that kind of interrelation between the rave and gentrification, it, it seems like something about it is still finding a little bit of a workaround. Oh, yeah. There's a, a venue that um, is, I think, finally, finally closed that used to be a, like a garage for cars, but it's actually a, a super fun site because of like thorine radioactivity and the the city, I think, is going to like dig it all up and get the thorine out, even though it's a very little danger to anybody as an excuse to redevelop it, you know, but... For a while there, we always called it Chernobyl. It's like, oh, where, where's this party at? It's a Chernobyl. And it's like, yeah, you know. And there'd be like trashed cars in the little dead-end street out the front. And next to it was a circus school, and that one's also gone. That used to be a rave venue. That was called The Muse. That's gone. And it's also someone who delights in wandering through urban spaces. It's a way to kind of experience these spaces of the city and observe what the city used to be for. This sort of use is, is this interstitial appropriation of it for our needs and then the inevitable, yep, it'll be condos or a kind of a food mall or a Whole Foods or something, you know, if not next year, year after. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Mackenzie Wark, author of Raving. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Malcolm Harris on the line with us again today. His latest book is called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World. And Malcolm has agreed to give us another book recommendation, which is very generous of him. Malcolm, what book are you going to recommend? Today I'm recommending the forthcoming The Palestine Laboratory by Anthony Lowenstein. The subhead is How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. Oh, interesting. Tell me more about this book. Yeah, so people might be familiar with the Pegasus scandal about Israeli cyber tech. And this book really gives a deeper account of the Israeli tech industry and the cyber tech industry and the way it's related to global authoritarianism and the practice thereof. Wow. How did you come upon this book? This is a, a Verso release forthcoming in, in May. So I got to give credit to the publicists over there who, who put it in my hands. It's uh, one people should be looking out for this coming months. Are you interested in the Israeli tech world? Is that something that you've been exploring? Yeah, well, it's has a lot of parallels, obviously, to my work on Silicon Valley, as well as the history of the colonization of Palestine also relates to the history of the colonization of California. So I think there's some parallels there for sure. And this is a, a great account of that industry. Sounds really good. Malcolm, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Once again, that's The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World by Antony Lowenstein. 
And that's, as you mentioned, not quite out yet, but it will be out in May. That's right. Thank you, Malcolm. You're very well. We've been speaking with Malcolm Harris. His latest book is called Palo Alto. You're listening to the LARP Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Mackenzie Ward, author of Raving. How did the pandemic change your experience of raving in the city? I hadn't been back at it very long and it had become a need. And then we're all in lockdown. And there were renegade street raves at that time. And this was really controversial because, you know, no matter how much you tell people about masking and social distancing, there was risk involved in that. I didn't go to the commercial ones. People try to make money off raves during the lockdown. didn't want anything to do with that. But I did go to some of the ones that were connected to Black Lives Matter that would segue from demonstration to rave. That struck me as an interesting model. And I also came to the conclusion, and like this is complicated, but like there's a lot of people for whom the COVID pandemic wasn't the only risk. That's just a risk on top of all the other ones. And particularly for a lot of trans people that I know and queer people, there's already all of these risks that have to be managed. And here's an additional one. So it's not like the only risk that you're paying attention to. And there's people for whom the sort of distributed social libidinal space of a thing like a rave is sort of essential to living, to survival. You know, I lost a dear friend during the lockdown because of the isolation. You know, I think he'd still be with us, but he lost his support space altogether and it's like pushed back in this isolated space, you know. I think the street raves and rooftop raves were about sort of trying to negotiate between different kinds of risks. And they upended the sort of ecology of who promoted parties and where they happened and which DJs played and all that. So, like, that was super interesting to just see these things spontaneously happen There's one that happened in a rail yard that was just insane, you know, people dancing in boxcars and people from all over the city in scenes that don't usually mix. That was super interesting and a little terrifying, actually. I I didn't stay long at that one and it got shut down. So, yeah, that was a super interesting moment in the city to just see people, like, take over space and use it differently, you know, like use a rooftop to let police shut you down, you know. Police wouldn't come in, but they'll make you turn off the music. You kind of call out a few journalists who wrote about parties taking place during lockdown. And I was curious, like, I can tell, so we're saying it's a fragile space. Maybe we could talk about also how important is it that it's an anonymous space. But I guess I also am curious what you think about the need to kind of evangelize the importance of this, especially in relationship to what we're saying, that isolation was for some people, even more of a threat than COVID, that some of the ideas that you're writing about here seem like if only they could reach a wider public, but then the same time when the wider public is coming into these spaces, they're not quite as safe. And also, you know, there's a certain point where you write that uh, style extraction is killing the space of the rave. So the way that the rave kind of is appearing in larger culture can be the thing that does it in. Like two of the three writers I was talking about was, uh, I forget who the third was, but Emily Witt and Brock Collier. I actually really liked their writing on Nightlife and 
I met both of them subsequently and it sort of is a bit of a joke. It was like, yeah, yeah, you all got these great bylines in legacy publications writing about these underground scenes, you know. And I appreciate that there's good writing about our worlds. I co-curate a series called Writing on Raving, where that's what we're aiming for, is to try to kind of curate a space where very different kinds of voices can collide about what this is, including, you know, sort of people who are deep in it but aren't necessarily writers and then writers who've come from without and let's put all those voices together and see if we can build a little bit of literary community around this where we can reflect on it and think it through what we do, yeah. So, yeah, I came up with a sort of personal ethics around it, which was in the book I don't name any of the parties, I don't name any of the venues, I don't name the promoters, Partly, I'm not doing free publicity for anybody, for one thing. and But also, these, not everybody needs to know, you know. If you want to go find it, you can find it. Like, it's not an exclusive world. Uh, you know, like my 61-year-old white ass found its way in there and, and people welcomed me when they figured out I could be trusted. So it's not like a secret or anything. It's just sort of you've got to prove what you're there for a little bit. So I didn't want to name where or what it's called or anything like that. And I named DJs because, you know, I kind of want to give it up to the artist a little bit. There's 26 characters in the book and they all have a letter of the alphabet and one's completely made up. The rest are based on people in the scene, but I've changed details, you know, so it's a little game for people in that scene to try to figure out, like, who who is R? Is R so-and-so? And is, you know, who is Q? Is Q the made-up one? You know, and that kind of thing. A little bit to, you know, what happens at the rave should stay there. Some of these people have serious day jobs where they would not want their employers to know that they're drug users, for example. So, yeah, I just wanted to respect that, you know, there's a the good parties put a sticker over your phone, right? It's kind of like it's not a thing to extract from, but inevitably that will happen. And what I'm calling style extraction happens out of places like Brooklyn, you know, people figure out how to monetize the things that it's generating and extract it. It's like free labor for somebody. And I'd rather not accelerate that. You know, if I can, I had different aims. So I wanted to write a book for people who are interested in collaborating together to make life, to make a world. I like how you said that it turns the health sites of social media inside out because it seems like it creates these alternate networks that are more hidden and private. I mean, you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I know where the party is through Instagram, through Discord, through private Discords or locked Instagram accounts. So social media has a role and like the post is now like in each square, right? They're made for the phone. So, you know, you go find it through social media, but it doesn't, the stuff that's interesting doesn't center it. It's sort of like a means. You don't have to like wheat paste your party all over town or do little, you know, like two inch square paper flyers to hand out at the outside the legit club. You know, that's kind of how this, a lot of this started. So yeah, like social media has its place and Technics has its place. Yeah, like it's all CDJs and digital musical files and thumping great amplifiers and sub bass. There's a Technics involved. But it's how can we, if we're sort of enclosed in this sort of massive techno structure over which we have very little agency because there's just little bits of it we can turn towards our own pleasure and our own needs. Yeah, well, that's um, something else I appreciate in the book is kind of like, being at one 
with the machine submitting to the music, you know, you say often in the book that people let themselves be fucked by the music, especially around a lot of technophobia that you could find a place of kind of like a, a happy, pleasurable merger. Yeah, and it's interesting how technophobia and transphobia can be kind of proximate, actually, thought for another time. But it sort of is my pet theory is that in order to actually get into this, you got to let the music fuck you. Like, that's sort of like what happens. You can top it if you want. You know, I don't want to prescribe any sexual relationship, but you got to be <laughs> open to it, you know, and release into that possibility is when it happens. But it is it is a technics, you know. So it's sort of like a minimum demand, you know, is, is there some small piece of this techniques that surrounds us and is mostly there to extract, you know, value and information out of us, is there some small piece of it we can turn towards other desires and other needs and other practices? And that's what I think. That's the art of this, yeah? It's an example of that art of like, yeah, we just turned a little piece of it towards this shared pleasure we have where we're just going to dance for hours and be off our phones. Yeah, it seems like that also relates to what comes up a lot as well is kind of a need for a different source of time, a different kind of time. You know, that there's the, the K time here, you know, from taking ketamine, there's the side chain time, there's time as moving just horizontally, and the music as kind of being this uh, unyielding time that you exist in. So that seems like a huge part of it as well, I was hoping you'd talk about. Yeah, I, and I think that's sort of it aesthetic conceptual part of the book is it's trying to mount a case for a different sort of temporal figure. How are we to have a, a sort of an aesthetic in relation to a time when there aren't really many futures, when we're running out of good futures and there's mostly only bad ones. There's a struggle to not have the absolute worst ones. So it's not it's not about giving up or cynicism or anything like that. But being emotionally reconciled to the vanishing of futures is going to take a lot of work. So what's a relation to temporality that would make the present livable without being fatalistic or cynical? Like, I think that's, I'm trying to join that work a little bit. And so there's sort of several ways of thinking about time in the book. One is K-time, ketamine time, which you can think allegorically. You don't have to take ketamine. It just happens I like to. Uh, as a sort of dissociated time where the time like separates out or seems to separate out from everyday time and historical time, there's rave continuum, the idea that like every good moment that you experience at the rave connects to every other good moment at the rave ever. And that's a, a separate time stream parallel to this one in some sense. And then the other idea is sideways time, that rather than sort of mourning a past or longing for a future, are there ways that you can sort of, time goes sideways, and what's that experience of a sideways time that a good rave generates? And how is the sort of structure of techno and then DJing as an art and participating in a rave as an art, things that produce a different relation to temporality and one that I think sort of very contemporary in a way of sort of managing fear and anxiety and loss of hope and all sorts of things that I think many of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, think at the moment, yeah? Because, like, so much of modernity is thinking about the future and how now do we deal with the lack of them? For sure. And also, you know, on a personal level, you entered the scene as someone who wasn't in their 20s, as someone who was 
quite a bit older. And I think so on a more global scale, but then on a personal one as well, it seems like how do you approach the coming of old age, you know, and have a place to maybe get away from some of those anxieties seems like beneficial. The thing about being a trans woman is that it feels like a choice between two kinds of short life. One is coming out early where a lot of things are going to conspire to shorten it. The other strategy is to, if you can, is like hide it and come out late, which is what I did. But that means my life as a woman in this world is going to be very short. Like I've got a few good years. And that's the burden I share with other late transitioners. We're more likely to have secured other sides of our life, but we'll get to be women in the world for a very short period of time. So there's very specific kinds of practical, you know, ways of thinking about time and what you do with it and, you know, what the unexamined life is not worth living, but the unlived life is not worth examining, you know. So how do you live it? That's a, a really good point. And I I see that. And I also see, you know, you you talk here about kind of like almost that you have a problem with ideas of ongoingness. It comes up more at first in regards to relationships, but it seems in general that even with what you just said, that it's like, countering the idea that you will only live a certain amount of time as a woman to the actual moment of just getting to live as a woman, you know, that those two seem to exist simultaneously. And one is very much in a more like linear version of time and one is more in a instantaneous kind of being. And that's a little bit, seems what it also comes up from the raving is like being right here, right now, you know, sounds kind of corny, but that that's what it offers as well. Yeah, you know, I I got to live a lot of that promise of middle-class life that would be ongoing, that, you know, there would be jobs that would be secure and would have career ladders and that you could, you know, like have a stable living situation and a long-term relationship and raise kids for whom there would be a future. Like I got to participate in that. Fewer and fewer younger people get that or expect that. And the climate is unraveling all around us, you know, and that's real. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to think in terms of that kind of ongoingness as sort of the standard model of contemporary experience. So, well, who do we learn from? Like who's actually already coping with the world without a sense of ongoingness? And like, it's not, it's not my experience, but a lot of the trans women around me like live like that. Like they don't expect to live forever. Two girls I know I ran into in the back of a club and they said hi and I said hi and I sat down and I said, how are you going? And and one of them said, we're now both homeless and laughed. Like just burst out laughing, you know, because that's just the story, you know. Housing insecurity is part of many trans people's lives, you know. So to me it's sort of like that's the sort of bittersweet side of it. And if you factor race into this, it gets even more obvious that, you know, there's populations for whom ongoingness is never guaranteed. Like any blackness is about, sorry, your ongoingness is just not guaranteed as as a black person in America. And so I, I wanted to tap into that and to center the blackness of techno as having like lessons in that for those of us such as myself who are sort of uninvited guests in it, who've come into it from elsewhere. So like that's sort of part of the work of the book is sort of to engage with those larger conversations, but to do it in the context of taking the reader 
on a journey into a world that's got some stories and some characters and some scenes and some lyricism, but to sort of be pointing to, you know, what's the aesthetic response to world historical crisis and how do we live, you know? Beautifully said. And that's, you know, it's like you don't present the rave as utopia, but neither is it apolitical. And it seems like, I think drugs often are considered hedonistic or kind of individualistic, but you kind of posit like leaving the world is okay because this world is broken. Like where else could we go? I wonder if that's something that you ever feel like at a rave that there is a kind of political potential there. And you mentioned that, you know, protests in the summer of 2020 then turned into raves. Like, do you see that having, not to put it in such temporal terms, but do you see that having a future or being kind of like an organizing force? I mean, all of the brokenness of the world comes through the door into the party. It's still there, you know. People bring their aggression and like a good rave dissipates more aggression than it generates. Like that's one of its, it's not utopia. Like you get an elbow in your ribs more often than not. For the first half hour, I hate everybody else around me on the dance floor. Just livid with rage at people for no good reason, you know. So I don't like the way you look, motherfucker. Like it takes me a good half hour to get out of that mentality. And a lot of people too, like I'm not, I have a, a performance piece where I start with that and everybody just laughs because it's like, oh yeah, we've all been through that. You know, like you have to work out of a lot of that when you're there. I don't want to make culture always have to be in service of something else. Why do we privilege the political as a mode of power all the time? Like, isn't culture its own form of power and counterpower? Isn't the aesthetic a form of power and counterpower already? without it always having to be in service of another thing. So, yeah, I'm sort of reluctant to get into that. There's a tendency to want to make the rave over as a political space or a religious space. And it's like, okay, well, those are languages you could apply to it. But I wanted to generate a different language that would explain it without reducing it to a thing that's already there. Like if an aesthetic experience is explainable in categories you've already got, then what's it doing, you know? What was interesting about this to me was the way it pushed back against all of the language. Although, you know, of course now I'm doing publicity for it and the first interviews and reviews are coming out and it's like, oh my God, everybody's rewriting it into these existing languages, you know? As a writer, that's just the struggle, you know, if you're trying to do something from more than 100 readers, you know, like it continually gets read into scripts we've already got. I can see that. So is there anything else unique to your book that we should get at or put out there to counter some of that? Is there anything I've missed that that you want to mention? Just that it's got color pictures. Like... <laughs> How many books can you get for $15.95 with color pictures? You know, like it's got that. And I was trying to come up with a different aesthetic for how you picture the rave as well and one that honoured the anonymity of the spaces. And I was edging around the, the boundaries of no photo. So how do you photograph the ambience and imbue the picture of it with the feeling of what it's like to be in that ambience? One of the pictures in the book has got, you know, like a friend's like fingers trying to cover up my camera because I was too close to the dance floor. And he was right, you know, but a lot of them I'm just sort of like looking for how do I respect, you know, the anonymity of it 
and sort of picture what this is like. And so that's sort of like the other little little bonus you get besides the text is that. Nice. What a deal. $15.95. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Mackenzie, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Mackenzie Wark. Her new book is Raving. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.